3ABN Australia Radio would like to welcome you to Songs of Praise.
Right. 
sat on Walkerwood Still his heart was
Endeavouring to encourage, inspire, uplift and soothe, we hope you are enjoying Songs of Praise.
attendeth my way when sorrows like sea billows roll whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say it is well it is well with my soul it is well with my soul it is well it is well with my soul strength. Yes, I will sing aloud of your loving kindness in the morning, for you have been my high tower, a refuge in the day of my distress. Psalm 59 verse 16. So dear to my heart is the promise of God, a home with the pure and blessed, where earth 
weary pilgrims, strangers here below, will find their eternal rest. I'm homesick for heaven, seems I cannot wait, yearning to enter Zion's pearly gate. There never a heartache, never a care. I long for my home over there. Tis Eden, fair Eden, I long to behold, where naught can despoil that's fair. Where saints of all ages hold communion sweet, the glories of heaven share. I'm homesick for heaven, seems I cannot wait, yearning to enter Zion's pearly gate. There never a heartache, never a care. I long for my home over there. But chiefest of all is the thought that enthralls that I shall behold my King. Rejoice in His presence, revel in His grace, and ever His praises sing. I'm homesick for heaven, seems I cannot wait, yearning to enter Zion's pearly gate. There never a heartache, Never a care, I long for my home over
happens every day They find themselves Just going through the paces They hide their empty souls They're showing only Happy painted faces And when the day was done When the lights are finally Gone through all the motions But what was it all about? And I've had a deeper look You never really had to choose And is God just a story?
It's our privilege to share songs of praise with our listeners on 3ABN Australia Radio.
the woman at the well I was seeking for things that could not satisfy and then I heard my Savior speaking draw from my well that never shall run forward to your company next time on Songs of Praise. Bye for now and may God bless you. Today, in 3ABN Australia Radio's book reading, we are continuing Banish the Night by the late missionary pilot and pastor Len Barnard, read by Clive Nash. The book is set in Papua New Guinea and is broadcast with the kind permission of Pacific Press and is available in print and digital editions online. Continuing Chapter 15, To Find a Plane During a mission workers' meeting at Ligham, I was shyly approached by Ruap, who had intimated that he wished to be married. The prospective bride was a mission girl and would make a good wife for an evangelist, So the ceremony was performed in the church a few days later, wedding a couple not far removed from heathenism 
who had asked God's benediction upon their marriage in his house. The heathen purchase brides with pigs and shells, the woman becoming little more to her husband than a degraded chattel, living with the pigs in a filthy hut. For Ruap and his young wife, the future would be very different. They expressed the desire that burned within them to share the faith that had so completely changed their lives. They were first appointed to a place Ruap had already visited. The journey took them over a 10,000-foot pass where one misstep would mean dropping to death hundreds of feet below. But there was beauty in the torrents that tumbled down the mountain and in the gorgeous birds of paradise which flew across the track. After several days, the couple emerged from a rainforest into a clearing and were joyously greeted by Ruop's heathen friends. Slowly, a simple mission station arose, first a dwelling hut and then a church. Then a morning came when Ruop's mind was restless and his body hot. When night came, he slept poorly, and the next day his aching body made every movement painful. The simple medicines he had brought gave him no relief. The following day, Ruap found to his dismay that his legs could not support him, so he appealed to some of the village men to make a stretcher and carry him to medical aid. They protested that the track was too steep and dangerous, but Ruap insisted that he must get help. Bowing his head, he asked God to care for the work he must leave behind and to help the carriers convey him safely over the terrible trail. The near-naked savages started along the narrow path, and the young wife tearfully followed. For long hours, with Ruop lashed to the stretcher, they struggled and stumbled on the steeply rising and falling track. At last, the walking ambulance reached the medical aid post recently established by the government. Here they stayed for several hours while the orderly gave Ruop injections. But these failed to help him, and his legs became completely paralysed. Reluctantly, the men decided to carry the patient to a hospital on the other side of the high pass. Knowing this track, I marvel that he was transported over it. Steep grades and precipitous gorges made it a nightmare even when walking empty-handed. Rain, cold and the danger of slipping added to the hazards. But they went on hour after hour. Finally, the sad little band arrived at Ligham and word was sent to me at Wabag. I requested the government to arrange an aircraft to bring Ruap to Wabag, which they did. But for unavoidable reasons, the plane was delayed two days, and finally the patient was transported by Land Rover. Weak and wasted, he arrived at the mission hospital. For eight long days, Ruap had suffered intensely, while life ebbed out of his legs and well nigh out of his whole body. The doctor repeatedly exclaimed, if only he had come sooner. Although both his legs were paralysed, I always found Ruap smiling, and never did he complain or question God's dealings with him. He would grasp his legs, demonstrating that they could be moved only by his hands. It took several weeks to convince Ruap of the awful truth that never again would his feet tramp the mountains with the gospel of peace. Under sympathetic medical treatment, his condition improved, but the disease had relentlessly taken its toll. However, Ruap was delighted when, in spite of his serious disability, he could care for a small company of worshippers. My valiant band of workers had struggled against great odds to bring the glad tidings of great joy to distant areas, 
and our lines were growing perilously long and thin. Budgets were lean, evangelists scarce. Logic demanded that we halt our expansion, but to do so would be to ignore the providences of God's forward leading. While our men toiled painfully over the mountains, missionaries of other denominations and their personnel flew comfortably overhead. Could our evangelists, with their wives and families, be expected to continue this way? Why couldn't we have a plane? A faithful worker and his wife were descending the mountain to Borgera, with their baby son carried in a bullum hanging from the mother's head. She slipped, and the infant's spine struck the root of a tree. He was in the hospital several weeks recovering from the painful injury that threatened to cause paralysis. Surely we were expecting too much of our workers and their wives. In the near future, the government planned to open to missionaries a particularly remote area called Lake Copiago. Travelling there by foot, over extremely difficult terrain, took 11 days. How could we do it? To me there was one obvious answer. Again, I pleaded with God to provide an aircraft. The evangelists also offered special prayers on this theme. The government had already built airstrips in most of the remote valleys. A plane would reduce days of hardship to minutes of comfortable travel. Before I left for furlough at the end of the year, money mysteriously began to flow in toward this specific project. All who knew me were aware that for nearly 20 years I had hoped to introduce a plane into mission service. The greeting of some of my friends had become, Well then, when is your mission plane coming? Tomorrow was my standard reply. At this time I inquired from our newly elected union president, Pastor O.D.F. McCutcheon, whether a gift plane would be accepted. He replied that very likely it would be gladly accepted. The same day a committee was convened and action was taken that, subject to the approval of the Australasian Division, should a plane be offered to the Union Mission as a gift, it would be accepted. It appeared that the Lord was leading in the direction I had hoped for so long. The subject of planes for mission use had long been debated throughout the world field. General conference action had been taken authorising use of aircraft under certain conditions, stipulating safe standards for pilots and passengers. The use of commercial aircraft for our field work had been tried, but where operations were some distance from the base of air companies, as my district work was, the cost was prohibitive. I once chartered a plane from the nearest base at Mount Hagen to fly me from Wabag to Porgera and to pick me up again five days later. The cost was $165.60, whereas operating a mission aircraft from my base at Ligham, I could fly to Porgera and return in 30 minutes for $7.50. When the missionary himself is also the pilot, the plane waits for him, and when his duties are finished, he can leave immediately. We awaited further developments with growing expectation. Chapter 16 a plane at last. Gazing for the first time upon a crashed warplane in the jungle of New Guinea in 1942, I was filled with conflicting emotions. I was amazed at the complexity of the machine, now a crumpled mass of metal with electronic gadgets, wires, pipes, dials and controls scattered around, complex and costly, 
but for the purpose of destruction. Many a night the drone of enemy engines aroused me from sleep in the jungle, and fascinated I rose to watch the long fingers of the searchlights raking the sky to find their marauders, and to listen to the thunder of the Akak guns as they splashed daubs of red in the dark sky. But the fascination waned suddenly when later I heard the swish of falling enemy bombs. Soon the Allied forces grew, and I witnessed mighty armadas of bombers and fighters roaring off seven-mile airstrip behind Port Moresby, and again at Dobadura, as pulverising raids were launched against Rabaul and other enemy strongholds. All this huge expenditure of men and material was so often used to bring death and destruction. But when the war was over, would there not be a great potential here for good? Thus began in me an unquenchable yearning to fly over these jungles on missions of mercy and goodwill. After four years in the army in New Guinea, I was discharged and returned to my homeland, New Zealand, for a few months. Here I joined an aero club and met Mr. Brian Haybittle, a World War I pilot who taught me to fly. I do not think Brian was overawed by my progress, but those were days of keen excitement for me. The tiger moth, with its open cockpit, gave one the exhilaration of flying, but when exposed to the icy atmosphere at 9,000 feet over snow-clad Mount Egmont in wintertime, I did not find it so pleasant. We had done several circuits and bumps together on one particular day, when Brian got out of the front cockpit and unfastened the forward control stick. Brian shouted above the noise of the idling engine, "Right, Lynn, it's all yours now. Take it away and do a few circuits and bumps. I was on my own, challenging the sky, a moment of great elation. I felt the jolting of the wheels on the turf, then its smooth cessation as the machine mounted into the air. The propeller struggled for speed and height while the engine roared like some living monster, throatily voicing its exuberance. I clearly remember the cold glow of the winter sun setting over the sea and the icy air that bit into my helmeted face. After a few circuits, I waddled the aircraft over to the hangar, and when my sister-in-law congratulated me, my frozen face would not permit even a smile in my moment of triumph. My primary purpose in flying was to be a missionary pilot. However, the Lord was to lead me by a long and devious route before my hope was realised. During the frustrating years of waiting, I flew whenever I could, especially on furloughs. An amazing series of events culminated in the purchase of the first aircraft used by Adventist missionaries in Australasia. During a period of five years, only about $1,000 had been contributed to the scheme. Then during the last few months prior to the purchase, $15,000 came in, spontaneously given by many people in different countries. An elderly lady in the United States caught the vision of our need for a mission plane and gave liberally of her means for the project, working incessantly at various occupations and giving her entire wages to the fund, saying she was determined to see the undertaking through, even if it were her last work on earth. A good friend in Hong Kong gave a substantial donation, and in Australia, strangers assisted liberally. In America, Dr. Glenn G. Reynolds of Washington, D.C., had very kindly undertaken to promote the scheme. Halfway through my furlough in 1964, the fund had grown to $12,000, 
which naturally delighted me. We could now obtain a good used aircraft, so I requested the doctor to set the wheels in motion for the purchase of a Cessna 180. To be continued. Tune in again next week for the next episode of Banish the Night, written by Len Barnard and read by Clive Nash. listen to William Ackland as he shares a psalm from his paraphrase of the Bible called The Gift. David was a prolific writer of the psalms and Psalm 27 is one of his and has the theme declaring the joy of faith. The Lord lightens my way and gives me salvation so there is no need for me to fear. The Lord gives strength to my life so I shall not be afraid. When wicked men came to attack me, to devour my flesh, these enemies tripped and fell right where they were. It does not matter if a large army should besiege me, I will not be afraid. Though a war should rage against me, I know you will help me. There is just one thing that I want the Lord to grant me, and it is this one thing that I seek that I may dwell in the place where God dwells all my life, that I may delight in his presence and hear him speak to me. In the time of great trouble, he will keep me with him. In that secret place of his home, he will hide me and shall exalt me in the rocky heights. Then he shall raise me high above my enemies who surround me, and I shall praise him with great joy in his tabernacle offering a sacrifice of praise to the God of heaven. Hear me, O Lord, when I cry out aloud to you. Extend your forgiveness to me and answer me. When you said, Seek my face, my heart leapt and I said, Your face, Lord, I will seek. So please do not turn away from me, O Lord. Do not send me away from you in anger. You have been the only one to help me. So do not leave me alone, O God, who saves me. If ever my father and my mother disown me, the Lord will care for me as his child. Teach me the way of the Lord and lead me along pure paths, for my enemies seek to lead me astray. Do not let me fall into the hands of those who oppose me, for many false witnesses have spoken against me who utter such things as would do me harm. I would become discouraged unless I knew I would see the Lord as he showed his goodness to the people of this world. Wait in faith upon the Lord and be strong in him and he will strengthen your spirit. Wait, I say, on the Lord.'"